thing as being too Jewish. Thank you very much. Shalom and welcome to the Two Jewish Radio Show with Rabbi Sam Cohen and Friends, a weekly serving of everything Jewish. We'll have a great hour together today of news, music, comedy, and conversation. Our guest this morning is Rabbi Matt Goritz, author of the new memoir, To Build a Brave Space. We'll also have a visit from our expert on the international Jewish scene, Tom Price. Please email your comments to us at 2JewishRadio18 at gmail.com or visit us on the web at 2JewishRadio.com. The opinions of the host and guests on 2Jewish are their own and not those of the radio station. 2Jewish is paid for by 2Jewish radio programs and podcasts, Tucson, Arizona. And now, here's Rabbi Sam Kohan and 2Jewish. Shalom. I've often contended Thanksgiving is truly a Jewish holiday. What else do you call a festival focused on overeating, in which you invite over all of your relatives, including the ones you don't like, for a giant meal? A Jewish holiday, no doubt. I'll never forget the complexity of the seating arrangements at my house growing up in Los Angeles, and the delicacy of deciding who could sit next to whom and who could not be placed in hearing distance of which relative. For example, my mother and her brother Max, who had never gotten along their entire lives, had to be placed pretty far apart. But Max, a successful Beverly Hills pharmacist and TV personality, but a socialist by politics and an atheist in belief, also had to be placed far from his cousin Bernie, a successful OBGYN to the stars, who had been Marilyn Monroe's gynecologist, believe it or not, made much of that, but who was much more conservative politically than Max and loved to goad him. My bubby Irma needed also to be away from the Philistine commentary of Cousin Bernie. She was Victorian in social outlook. My 20-something cousin Gary might or might not show up and would almost certainly be late, so he had to be placed at a seat accessible once the dining room was immovably full of people crammed around the various linked tables arranged to accommodate everybody in a dining room that was quite a bit too small. Of course, my mom's friend Roche talked nonstop, so she had to be near somebody who didn't mind that or preferably was hard of hearing. And don't forget, there are two side seats for every guest at a dinner table and you don't want to separate husbands and wives and some people take up a little more room and kids have friends too. In truth, only my mom and eventually my sister Deborah had the combination of personal knowledge and human perception to successfully arrange our seating for a peaceable Thanksgiving dinner. In my view, the only thing more difficult in my house growing up than figuring out the seating at Thanksgiving was doing so for Passover seders. All of which brings to mind the best, most Jewish, and most painful Thanksgiving movie scene of all. It's from Barry Levinson's 1990 film, Avalon. You started without me? You cut the turkey without me? Come on, relieve. They start bananas, we go. Every year you are late, Gabriel. We were hungry, the kids wanted to eat, we were ready, we couldn't wait. Your own flesh and blood and you couldn't wait? You cut the turkey? That's it. That's the last time we come for Thanksgiving. The amazing old Jewish actor Lou Jacoby with perhaps his most famous line, You cut the turkey without me. 
I genuinely hope your own Thanksgiving dinner guest experience last Thursday was simpler than mine was as a child, and that you have good reason to give thanks this year for all that you have. Incidentally, or not so incidentally, the inspiration for the original American Thanksgiving dinner was the biblical festival of Sukkot, Feast of Booths or Tabernacles in the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible. Sukkot was also the source for the upcoming festival of Hanukkah, an eight-day-and-night celebration established by the Hasmonean Maccabees as a way to give thanks for victory over the oppressor Syrians and the rededication of the temple in Jerusalem. Thanksgiving plays a major role in so much of what we ought to experience about religion and our world. Last year at this time, I had the challenging experience of debating somebody by text who felt that associating a holiday so often based on the white conquest of Native Americans in North America with anything Jewish demonstrated the privilege I must be feeling as a white male in our society. The argument we had, my side, was that a holiday of gratitude for what we have should be non-political, that Thanksgiving is a universal religious motivation, etc., went exactly nowhere. This person, partly Native in heritage, believed firmly Thanksgiving is, at least symbolically, really about the brutal, genocidal eradication of the Native American way of life on two continents, North and South America. The argument only softened when my lovely wife Sophia suggested I note that my own ancestors were persecuted, tortured, expelled, and slaughtered for 2,000 years on several continents. We Jews bore no responsibility for the destruction of Native American cultures. We have been and are a minority everywhere in the world, except Israel. Which brings up a problem finally being examined in more serious ways these days. Jews in the West often have white skins, aren't so obviously distinguishable from majority cultures in North America or Europe, and through hard work and education have climbed the social ladder to great success in many walks of life. But frankly, we are not actually um, white to many people. Generally speaking, we often don't think the same way that people who grow up fully accepted by the larger society do. There is good reason for this. There have, of course, been many examples of the renewed normalization of anti-Semitism in our society in recent years. On the left, anti-Semitism typically isn't even viewed as racism at all. After all, the argument goes, Jews don't have black or brown skins. Never mind that many Jews do, of course. And hating Israel and denying the Jewish right to a state aren't viewed as racist attitudes, but often as progressive ones which makes it possible and popular on the left to often voice frankly hateful anti-Semitic views with impunity. On the political right, a recurrent, ugly, and at times deadly anti-Semitic subculture has now embraced neo-Nazi conspiracy theories about the Jewish control of the world. Jews are demonized as progressive liberals allowing immigrants to flood our cities, or permitting woke perspectives to destroy social morality in society. This has led to recurrent explosions of violence against Jews. Well, both views can't be true, of course. In fact, neither are true. We can't win here, apparently not even during Thanksgiving weekend. Oh, heck, let's hear from Lou Jacoby again.
You started without me? You cut the turkey without me? Come on, we leave. They start without us, we go. Every year you are late, Gabriel. We were hungry, the kids wanted to eat, we were ready, we couldn't wait. Your own flesh and blood and you couldn't wait? You cut the turkey? That's it. That's the last time we come for Thanksgiving. Back to family problems, I guess. It's enough to make you long for a simpler, better world. And so to play us in this Thanksgiving weekend, here are two legends of Israeli music, Yehudit Ravitz and Esther Ofarim, singing Yam Shel Gagua, the sea of longing. <laughs> singing her own melody to Ehud Manor's lyrics with Esther Ofarim, Yam Shel Ga'agua, The Sea of Longing. Our guest this morning, Rabbi Matt Gewurz, has a new book exploring his experiences as a congregational rabbi during strange and important times. But first, what does it mean to be a rabbi on a motorcycle? Find out when we come back in a moment on Too Jewish. We are the soul of Tucson. We are your neighbors and friends. Our commitment to provide the very best relies on the finest products and services you, our community, has to offer. Together, we make Tucson thrive. When we win, you win. Casino del Sol, the soul of Tucson. Enterprise of the Pasquayaki Tribe. We are delighted to welcome to Two Jewish our guest this morning. Matt Gewurz is the senior rabbi of Congregation B'nai Yeshurun in Short Hills. It's probably pronounced B'nai Jeshurun, isn't it? Um, it is, by New Jerseyans, it is, yes. Of course. Uh, largest synagogue in New Jersey, one of the largest ones in the country. He's been there for 16 years, president of the Coalition of Religious Leaders for the state of New Jersey. He is the author previously of The Gift of Grief, Finding Peace, Transformation, and Renewed Life After Great Sorrow. He has done a great amount of media, uh, one of the better congregational rabbis in the country, and his new book is called To Build a Brave Space. Good morning and welcome to Two Jewish. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. And in the interest of full disclosure, um, I co-officiated at a wedding with him like five years ago. I don't probably a lot of people have done that. Um, I'm almost embarrassed to say that I, where was that? It was in New Jersey. Uh, that's the only reason it's, I haven't done a lot of weddings in New Jersey being in Arizona. Uh, 
It was for a guy from your congregation and uh, Bryce Megdahl, who has become a cantor. Uh, yes, 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 yes. So, uh, that was an outside beautiful wedding. It was beautiful. Yeah, deer came up and the chuppah blew down. Other than that, it was. Yes. Wow. You know, the uh, pandemic happened in the middle of things and it sort of erases memory from before that. Which is one of the um, subjects of your memoir. Um, you know, I, look, uh, I don't want to say it's harder than working in a salt mine, but being a congregational rabbi is a highly demanding job. How do you find time to write? You know, I started this book before the pandemic, and I feel like you don't write books unless you have something inside of you that really needs to come out, because it's otherwise a horrible process. And I did. I, I, <laughs> I would agree with that, actually. No, it's absolutely true. And wrote it, sent it in to be edited to the publisher. The pandemic hit, and he called me and said, listen, I'll let you add them out the contract if you want, but we cannot publish this book. You have to rewrite it because of the pandemic. You just can't write one without talking about it. And I'd already put in too much time. So the pandemic, as you know, because it kept us isolated, it was incredibly busy, but there was no place to go when you weren't busy. And that's what I wrote. You've um, now done this a long time. In creating this memoir and having to go back and kind of redo it because of COVID, what was your biggest surprise? The biggest surprise in writing the book or things that I've learned about myself? Um, I, I would say both, actually. The biggest surprise in writing the book, but I shouldn't have been surprised, is uh, how many times I was told that I couldn't give sermons in a book that I had a right to a reader. And it took me so long to transition from writing papers and articles in college and rabbinic school to writing sermons. Now I've become a decent sermon writer it was hard to transition back to writing for a reader as opposed to writing to a listener. That was, uh, I shouldn't have been surprised, but it was really tough and it surprised. What? And about myself, yeah. I remembered stories or re-remembered stories that had been buried that I totally had forgotten. And I got into what you and I call chabruta, meaning, you know, sort of partnerships of learning with different colleagues. And they helped bring my voice out, asked me a lot of questions about childhood. And I, unburied certain things that, frankly, I had just stuck someplace that I never wanted to see again, and they came out for this book. It's sometimes the most painful things that create the greatest art, or often the deepest truths. You talk about a lot of really traumatic events in the course of the book, whether it's um, rallies, uh, the the killing of the athletes at the Olympic headquarters, all of the kind of different aspects that you look at. Um, is it only the painful moments that bring in out the depth, do you think? Only the painful moments that bring out... I didn't hear the that bring part. out the emotional depth? I think that it's the clearest path to vulnerability of the painful moments, but I also believe that unadulterated joy can do the same thing. So my wedding, my the birth of my children, the bidding midst of my children, all those kinds of things, I think, cut through what, you know, the Hasidim would call, you know, bitul nefesh the nullification of the ego. And I think both sadness and, uh, and loss, but also unadulterated joy can cut through the ego to get to the uh, depth of who we are in authentic ways. We will talk much more with Matt Gewertz and his new book, To Build a Brave Space, when we come back in a moment here on Too Jewish. 
Beit Simcha, the House of Joy, a wonderful Jewish synagogue in Catalina Foothills and Northwest Tucson, celebrates a fabulous array of services, classes, and events this fall and winter. Established by passionate, caring congregants and me, Rabbi Sam Kohan, Beit Simcha is a vibrant, vital community that strives every day to serve God with joy. A progressive congregation in Northwest Tucson and the Foothills, Beit Simcha is open to everyone throughout the metropolitan area, providing weekly Shabbat services Friday night and Saturday morning, youth and adult education academy courses, social justice opportunities, outreach, and cultural Jewish programming. Join us in person for Shabbat services or come on Facebook Live. Go to our website, BeitSimchaTucson.org, B-E-I-T-S-I-M-C-H-A-Tucson.org. We welcome members and guests in our sanctuary in person. 520-276-5675, that's 276-5675. Join me, Rabbi Sam Kohan, in the fastest-growing Jewish congregation in all of Arizona during our great beginning years. If you've got a question, comment, compliment, or criticism, kvetch or kvel, please email us at 2JewishRadio18 at gmail.com. That's T-O-O JewishRadio18 at gmail.com. Or visit our website, 2JewishRadio.com. You can hear all past and present shows through the website, streaming us from there, downloading us from the Apple iTunes Store as very popular Jewish podcast, Top 10 in America, according to Moment Magazine, over 175,000 downloads on Podbean. Post a rating and review to Jewish. By the way, we're on Spotify, too. Wherever you listen to our podcast, give us a five-star rating. Those comments do help. The stories we share last a lifetime and are passed down from generation to generation, known for our compassionate commitment to the families we serve. Evergreen Mortuary and Cemetery has faithfully served the Tucson community and the Jewish community for over 100 years. We help thousands of families plan and carry out celebrations of loved ones in unique and special ways and assist them in sharing those lifetimes of stories meaningfully. The most beautiful and tranquil final resting place in all of Southern Arizona, Evergreen's tall pines shade peaceful grassy fields. You can count on Evergreen for superior service and the highest degree of integrity. Our informative, well-trained staff is here to assist you with a full range of on-site services. Call Evergreen. 520-888-7470, 520-888-7470. While we serve the whole community, our experience conducting Jewish funerals, Reform, Conservative, and Orthodox is second to none. We have sections dedicated to all religious faiths, can help you arrange for your future needs or your immediate ones. Whether you choose to hold a traditional funeral service or a completely individualized ceremony, either in person or online or both, our goal is to help you create a meaningful, personalized service based upon your unique needs in a place of reflection, tradition, and serenity. Evergreen Mortuary and Cemetery offers the best to the community and to you. Call 520-888-7470. To speak to a family advisor at Evergreen, call 520-888-7470. We welcome our expert on the international Jewish scene, Tom Price. Good morning, Tom. Good morning, Rabbi. So um, I had an interesting conversation with a class uh, the other day about ultra-Orthodoxy and Orthodoxy. And I think for a lot of American Jews, there's a perception that 
all Orthodox Jews are the same, that they're sort of this monolithic. Those are the people that are Orthodox. And I'm not so Orthodox, so that's not that's what I don't do. But uh, that couldn't be much further from the truth, could it? Right. I mean, just a quick visual check shows you that not all people who consider themselves Orthodox or who are very observant of all the mitzvot, they don't all wear black hats and long coats. Or uh, have beards or you know, wear black for that matter at all. Correct. Right. So there's there's a visual difference. And I mean, one of the big differentiating factors is, are you Hasidic or are you something else and still consider yourself Orthodox? And are there ultra-Orthodox people who are not Hasidic? I think yes. You know, so the, the difference in, in Hebrew is the difference between Haredim, the ultra-Orthodox, and what we tend to call the modern Orthodox. And um, while most people think, oh, the ultra-Orthodox, the Hasidim, the ones you see in all of the painted pictures and with the black hats and the long coats, that that's most of the Orthodox Jews. But that's not actually true. Uh, probably two-thirds to three-quarters of the people who self-identify as Orthodox are modern Orthodox, um, some of whom will be familiar to our listeners, whether it's... Um, forgive me, but Jared Kushner or uh, other prominent Jews in public life, Joe Lieberman, you know, who are modern Orthodox and they don't wear black coats and they don't uh, have long beards. Right. And the women especially don't. <laughs> um, even within the Hasidic world, the perception that everybody Hasidic is the same or they're all Chabad Hasidim is also absolutely not the case. Right. There are all these different sects. We were talking before about how one of the two leaders of the Satmars in New York came out with really a stiff scolding of Orthodox Jewry in general, not only his adherents and his followers, but the Orthodox world in general for their cult-like devotion to Donald Trump. And it was the first time, to my knowledge, that any Orthodox leader, Hasidic or otherwise, did something like that. Certainly it's the first time I've seen that from the Haredi world, from the ultra-Orthodox world. And he was uh, very clear. He said, people are following Trump and they're not following Torah, that they're making that distinction. He called it the Trump Mishigas. I had it on the radio show a couple weeks ago. Um, you know, to... Even within the ultra-Orthodox world, even within the Satmar world, which is pretty extreme even among the ultra-Orthodox, for example, they're anti-Zionists, you know, which sets them apart from most of the other uh, ultra-Orthodox Haridim of the world. Um, there's a variation. There's different interpretations and different approaches. I, You know, uh, most people in America are familiar with Chabad because Chabad is like Starbucks, everywhere. Um, Chabad is a pre-modern, ultra-Orthodox movement of Judaism that absolutely embraces modern technology, right? They were the first to have websites. Right. They post all the time on Facebook. They have Twitter feeds. They're not Luddites. They are opposite of Luddites, um, even if on Shabbos they pre-tear the toilet paper. I mean, you know, so it's, I mean, it's a fascinating and complicated world. Right. I think one thing that might be interesting for your listeners is what's the source of the names of all these different sects? And why, for example, are there two heads of Satmar in New York, in one city, in a pretty tiny community, in a minority, within a minority, within a minority? 
Why are there two? Because they're Jews. One, they don't write. Because okay. that's how Jews are. But you know what? Where where do these terms Bubaver, Belzer, Belzer, all of them? Where where do these terms come from? Bratslaver. There's a ton. Uh, what so, what are so they from that, for that man. So those are the names of towns in the Pale of Settlement, primarily in Eastern Europe, where the original Rebbe came from. Lubavitch. That's why they're Lubavitcher Hasidim, the Chabadniks. Or, and so these are frankly, not the most important places in the world, right? Um, they were shtetls. Most of them are devoid of Jews today uh, because of the Holocaust. But those sects began there, and they preserved that name uh, and that identity. Right. And in the case of Satmar specifically, they come from a place that is now in Romania, but it was the Hungarian part of Romania where everybody spoke Hungarian. And in Romanian, it's Satumare, and it still exists. It's it's a real city. You can fly there even. Wow. It's got an airport. Um, although uh, I expect it does not have a huge Hasidic population today. Right. Tom, thanks so much. We'll talk next week. I look forward to it. It's time now for our old Jewish joke of the week. Jewish humor, your Bubby and Zadie knew, brought to you by Too Jewish as a public service. Saul Horowitz, a longtime waiter at the Carnegie Deli, has passed on. His friends decide to have a seance to bring back Saul's spirit. They hire Sylvia Cohen, the famous medium. Everybody gathers at Sylvia's studio. They're seated at a large round table. Sylvia dims the lights, taps her cane on the floor, and calls out, Saul Horowitz, speak to us. Silence. Again, Sylvia taps her cane. Calls out louder, Saul Horowitz, we know you are here. Speak to us now. Nothing. After several more tries, increasing the volume of the cane tapping and the yelling, she says, Saul Horowitz, we feel your presence. Why won't you speak to us? From the darkness, they hear Saul's voice. Because it's not my table. You see, he was a waiter at the Carnegie Deli and, uh, never mind. That was the old Jewish joke of the week. Special feature of Two Jewish just for you. You should live and be well. And now a word of Torah. The urge to journey out into the unknown is a major motivation in the scriptures. We saw it with Abraham a few weeks ago. We find it in the lives of most of our great ancestors. And we encounter it, perhaps most powerfully, in the story of this week's portion of Vayetze. At the start of the Torah tale, Jacob is fleeing his brother Esau's potential revenge after having cheated him out of both birthright and blessing. He leaves his family and his home, both of which are in Beersheba in Canaan, and journeys towards Haran, Abraham's adopted hometown. Haran is just north of the current Syrian border in eastern Turkey near Shanliurfa, between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers in the cradle of civilization. I visited the area during a sabbatical trip some years ago. At that time, Haran was filled with refugees from the Syrian civil war. 3,700 years ago, when Jacob headed there, Haran was an important city-state in ancient Syria, and Abraham's kin lived there. In Vayetze, Jacob first has to get to Haran. He is ill-prepared for the journey. He has nothing with him at all, not even a bedroll, and at night is forced to lay his head on a rock to sleep. In this state of extremist, God brings him a promise in the form of a famous dream. 
a ladder ascending to heaven, angels going up and down, and a pledge of family, land, and ultimate safety and security. Jacob, our forefather, wakes from this ladder dream and says pointedly, Hey, God was in this place, and I didn't know it. That's something all of us can say from time to time, isn't it? For God is in every place, and often we don't realize it. Here in Vayetze, Jacob's exclamation provides an incredible message of awareness from the true father of our people. There's another important message in Vayetze. Jacob must leave everything familiar in order to allow him to find God's presence. Throughout human history, religions have been founded by individuals who left ordinary lives and places and wandered off into the wilderness, usually the desert. Abraham, Jacob, and Moses are the most obvious Jewish pioneers. Buddha, Jesus, and Muhammad fit that same pattern. In order to become who we seek to be spiritually, we must begin by leaving what we already know. And then, when we encounter God in the wilderness, we learn that God was back there at home too. We just weren't quite ready to notice that fact. On a personal level, it is why I've always found Shabbat hikes and services to be so great. The opportunity to encounter God in the Sonoran Desert where I live, in the mountains, at a waterfall, or in the backcountry, often feels immediate, holy. You know, of all the major figures in Genesis, Jacob is the most interesting, complex, clever, tricky, bold, resourceful, and he has a very complicated love life. He is also the biological father of all 12 tribes of Israel, the reason we are known as B'nai Yisrael, or B'nai Yaakov, even the children of Israel, Jacob. More about that in next week's Torah talk, but it's this moment near the beginning of Ayetse when he realizes how little he really knows that makes him most human and most like us. And it's his journey into the wilderness alone with nothing that helps us understand spirituality is not found by doing what is most comfortable. Often we too struggle to figure out where to find God. If we are lucky and aware, we will come to realize God is in this place, indeed in every place. All we have to do is go out into the wilderness a bit, open our eyes, accept God's presence, then it may become easier to see and feel God everywhere else. When we come back on To Jewish, our guest this morning, Rabbi Matt Gewertz, tells us why he had to rewrite his new book entirely to build a brave space. Find out when we come back in a moment here on Two Jewish. We continue with our Two Jewish update on news of Jews around the world with commentary. The anti-Semitism watch gets weirder every day. There was progress on some fronts. NBA star Kyrie Irving apologized fully for his recent idiocies. He was restated to the Brooklyn Nets after an eight-game suspension. Originally, Irving posted favorably about a film and book containing anti-Semitic tropes and advocating conspiracy theories about Jews. We hope this apology, which Kyrie had been reluctant to give, ends the matter. Critics of Kyrie's decision to tweet a link to the film Hebrews to Negroes, Wake Up Black America, noted it boosted sales of the film and a related book promoting the idea Jews were heavily involved in the Atlantic slave trade. They were not. It denies the Holocaust and says black people are the real Jews. Hmm. 
While he refused to apologize initially, Irving ultimately did apologize back on November 3rd, hours after he was suspended from the Nets. To all Jewish families and communities that are hurt and affected from my post, I am deeply sorry to have caused you pain and I apologize, Irving wrote on Instagram. When he came back this past week, he added, I just want to offer my deep apologies to all those who were impacted over these last few weeks, specifically my Jewish relatives, my black relatives, all races and colors. Feel like we all felt an impact. I don't stand for anything close to hate speech or anti-Semitism or anything that is anti, going against the human race. Kyrie Irving also seemed to reflect on the way he handled the now month-long saga, which initially included his repeated refusal to apologize for his tweet and his insistence that he cannot be anti-Semitic. Irving continued, I feel like we all should have an opportunity to speak for ourselves when things are assumed about us. I feel it was necessary for me to stand in this place and take accountability for my actions because there was a way I should have handled all this. As I look back and reflect, when I had the opportunity to offer my deep regrets to anyone that felt threatened or felt hurt by what I posted, that wasn't my intent at all. Well and good. On the other hand, Elon Musk, who is definitely not Jewish in spite of having a first name used in Israel, welcomed back Kanye West to his new weird and probably wicked world of Twitter, which looks like it will be even less responsible than the previous iterations have been. Kanye West has a serious track record of anti-Semitic comments and posts. He was eventually banned from Twitter for demonstrating hate speech again and again. After Musk bought Twitter and lifted the ban, Kanye West came back on Twitter with a snide, Shalom. All class, that guy. Musk agreed in a meeting several weeks ago with Anti-Defamation League head Jonathan Greenblatt that he would have a transparent and responsible policy to limit hate speech on Twitter. Greenblatt and the ADL now feel betrayed and said so. Musk responded in his inevitably smart Alec way, Hey, don't defame me. The Anti-Defamation League, the ADL, get it? My, he's clever. You know, I've admired Musk's unique ability to do things nobody else believed possible, create a new industrial manufacturing company to make cars in 21st century America, develop a private company to build rockets that go into space profitably. He is the richest person in the world. But that does not give Elon Musk a free pass to court hate speech anti-Semites because he believes they increase business and get him more attention. Frankly, it's a disgusting abuse of the concept of free speech. Hate speech isn't free. It costs a great deal. In New York last week, a planned attack on a synagogue was thwarted by police. Mayor Eric Adams is earning plaudits from the Jewish community, major ones, for his active and transparent role in communicating realistic threats to Jewish leaders and congregations. According to Jewish leaders, the city is now the most responsive it has ever been to threats to Jews, and Eric Adams has become an extraordinary partner in preventing tragedies. Finally, in Israel, a plaza in Jerusalem's Kiryat Hayovel neighborhood was named after Aristides de Sousa Mendes, a Portuguese diplomat who saved thousands of lives during the Holocaust, then spent the rest of his life as a social pariah in Portugal. This small corner of Jerusalem, the Eternal City, now carries the name of a hero. Said Jerusalem Mayor Moshe Leon last week, think of the many thousands who will pass by here every day, many of them, perhaps, Jews saved because of the bravery of Ambassador Sousa Mendes. 
Sousa Mendes served as consul in Bordeaux in 1940. He gave visas to over 10,000 Jewish refugees as the Nazis rose to power. Risking danger to himself and his family, Sousa Mendes saved about 30,000 people total, despite the circular 14 decree issued by Portuguese dictator Antonio Salazar, which banned Portuguese diplomats from supplying Jews with visas. Sousa Mendes was recognized with a monument in Lisbon in 2020, had an airplane named after him in 2014, but his actions were not widely acknowledged during his life. He was recalled back to Lisbon during the war, blacklisted, and fell into poverty. Lisbon's Jewish community fed him and his family in their community soup kitchen. He lost everything, Olivia Mattis, president of the Sousa Mendes Foundation and a descendant of one of those he saved, said. Mendez was posthumously recognized as Righteous Among the Nations, a title conferred on behalf of the State of Israel by the Yad Vashem Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem to non-Jews who risked their lives and saved Jews during the Holocaust. Paying tribute to this man is an opportunity to look inside ourselves in search of values of peace, love, humanity, and compassion for each other, said Jorge Cabral, Portugal's ambassador to Israel at the naming ceremony. And that's the two Jewish news of Jews around the world. We are delighted to welcome back to Two Jewish our guest this morning. Rabbi Matt Gewertz has been the rabbi of one of the largest congregations in the country, senior rabbi of congregation B'nai Jeshurun. Sorry, it's hard for me to say it that way. In uh, Short Hills, New Jersey, president of the Coalition of Religious Leaders for the state of New Jersey, a contributor to a variety of publications, previously the author of The Gift of Grief, Finding Peace, Transformation, and Renewed Life After Great Sorrow, and his new book, To Build a Brave uh, Space, talks a little bit about how he wanted as a kid to be a rabbi on a motorcycle and he never got there. Uh, <laughs> can you tell us that story? Yeah, the uh, was young kipper, my first year out of college, I was in the corporate world. And my mother said, can we spend some time in the afternoon together? And my parents were split. My father was more of a synagogue goer. My mother wasn't. So I went to see her and she said... I believe that children know more about themselves than adults give them credit for. I said, I agree with that. And then she said, let me tell you what you said you wanted to be. And when I was five years old, I don't remember it, but she reminded me that I said I wanted to be a rabbi on a motorcycle. And uh, I gave her 10 reasons why it wouldn't be possible for me to be a rabbi. And I thought she was out of her mind. And when she sort of took those on, she gave me 10 reasons why I should be. And uh, as a loving, respectful son, I wished her a happy and healthy New Year and told her I would think about it and walked out laughing. And three years later, I went to rabbinic school. And it was not until after my first real theology class in my third year that I knew I should and could be a rabbi. Uh, The motorcycle, about a year or two after I was five years old, she came home. She was a teacher distraught because one of her students was killed in a motorcycle accident. And she looked at me and she said, no matter what you do, you will never, ever get on a motorcycle in your life. And then she told me chapter and verse what happened to this guy traumatized me so much that I've never gotten on a motorcycle in my life. In um, becoming a congregational rabbi, um, uh, I mean, it's not just a lifestyle. It's a calling. It's a 
24-7 kind of experience, especially at a large congregation. But I don't, I don't think it's necessarily so different depending on where you are. Um, you have to reflect kind of regularly on what's going on in daily life, but somehow keep it balanced for your congregation. It's one of the things that comes out quite quickly in your book. Um, how do you balance between, gosh, I really believe this, and I can't say that? I, um, I think, you know, on one hand, I, if you thought too carefully about what people would think, you would never write a decent sermon, because you have so many different sides of the spectrum that you would just be writing to people as opposed to writing what you authentically feel. So I try really hard to see what comes up from the inside and let it be as real as possible and then bring, I hope, a sense of savvy to it where, for instance, in my first two or three years, I did not speak about politics at all from the pulpit because I had not gained trust and confidence in relationship yet. Once they knew that, first and foremost, I cared about them and their families and their sense of purpose and direction in life, then I got a lot more permission and bandwidth to speak about what I thought was most important, even if it touched the political, because they knew ultimately what I cared about most was them as human beings and not about, you know, which way they voted. So I start with myself, I build relationship, and then I start to be able to talk about what I think counts the most. And by the way, when I speak about politics, I don't speak about it from the red or blue point of view, but from the values that underlie the position. It, it, I, of course, I, I agree. I think that's the only legitimate perspective for a rabbi. Our degrees aren't in political science. Um, I suppose there may be some who have graduate degrees in political science, but that's not why people are coming to hear us. They want to hear Jewish values. Um, when... Um, yeah, there's a great story in here about how you, at one point you decided you were going to quit Hofstra and make Aliyah. Um, can you, can you tell us a little bit of, that's great. I just love that story. I, listen, I, you know, went to Israel at 17, not knowing why I was going. It was my only form of rebellion. I, I wasn't such a cool kid. So that was my <laughs> form of rebellion. Mom and dad, I'm going to live in Israel thinking they would fight with me and say, no, you're not. You're going to college. When I was growing up, my dad was a cantor and I started studying music. And at one point I, when I was 50 and I went to him and I said, dad, I want to learn how to do chazanut. I want to be a cantor. And he said, that's fine. Do it as an avocation. Never do it as a profession. It's a terrible profession. Oh, yeah, yeah. So my rebellion was to become a cantor and then to become a rabbi just in case, you know, it wasn't enough. Anyway, sorry, I interrupted a great story. No, I think that's great. Um, so I, so they said, go, you should go to Israel. And I, you know, was very immature as a 17-year-old, physically and emotionally. I mean, I hadn't gone through my real growth spurt yet. So I was short and I was young and I was immature and probably dysfunctionally attached to my family. And you know, it's 1983. So when you go away, you go away. Like there's no internet, there's no email, there's no text messages. It was 50 bucks a phone call to talk to home. So it was only once a month that we did it. And so I had no choice but to grow up. And while growing up, I fell in love with Israel and Zionism and my Jewish identity. And not because I suddenly wanted to put on tefillin every day and, and be, you know, kosher, uh, all the kinds of things you might see as signs of observance in this country. I fell in love with the Zionist story, and I fell in love with 
Israel as I grew into my manhood. And all that was a recipe for feeling like I belonged there more than I belonged any place. And yet, I'm from here, I'm from the United States, and my family is here, and I found this profession in America that is my life's calling. But I would say, and I describe this to every group I take to Israel, I just got back a few days ago, that I feel like while living in America, I'm cheating on a girlfriend somehow, because there's a piece of me that never feels whole because I'm not there, and yet I feel so whole from what I do here, and I've raised my kids here, et cetera, it's a real conflict for me in life. Look, I, I think a lot of a lot of Jews who love Israel and are really American share that. I, I've also uh, often wondered when a rabbi makes Aliyah to Israel, it's coals to Newcastle. Like there aren't jobs there, right? It's a different world. How, how do I even make it there? That's, that's a serious issue. I mean, I, I've always wondered, like, I, I don't want to be poor in my life. And I went to graduate school for five years, paid off enormous amounts of student loans. Would I be able to actually make a living there? And that was, and the ones who've done it, is part of me that are jealous of them because they've sacrificed. They have not they made have. a living yeah. in the way that we have, but their Zionism was more important. And they became school teachers or tour guides or whatever else our friends become when they move to Israel. So uh, this isn't really the subject of your book, but you know, you reflect on Jewish history. You talk about many things having to do with the vitality and vibrance of Judaism. Um, you've been at a large congregation for a long time now. Um, what do you see as the future, uh, just from your own observations as a re- very reflective guy, of congregational life in America, on reformed congregations, large, large congregations, any congregational life in America? I'm really happy you asked that because the you, know, you can't put everything in a book, and there was a huge section of the book on this, and it just it had to come out. It, was, it just it wasn't connecting. The, what you are asking about is something I've been deeply reflecting on for, I would say, at least 10 years. And in those 10 years, there's been all these studies that have come out that have bared out some of our greatest fears, which is that I started as a rabbi 26 years ago. Affiliation was like 50 or 60 percent. It's now 29 percent. And since the pandemic, uh, Jewish affiliation, not just the pandemic, but 2008, the financial crisis, we've lost 20 percent more of our Jews from affiliation. So that's the bad news. The good news is that 94% of Jews in this country still claim to be proudly identified with being Jewish. And I believe that the large congregation, congregations in general, have, um, let me put it this way, let me back up for a second, and this comes from a colleague of mine. It's like taking a vegetarian to a steakhouse. They're starving, but there's nothing for them to eat from the menu. And so I believe that people are spiritually ravenous, but the congregational world somehow along the way in the last 30 or 40 years stopped serving from a menu from which people wanted to eat. And I believe that it's our job to take something that's still very powerful, this age-old message that provides meaning and purpose and direction, and we have to, and please excuse the way I'm going to say this because it sounds crass, we have to package it in a way that's going to uh, attract the Jewish seeker back to the synagogue because they're not excuse the double negative, they're not not seeking, they are seeking. They're just not, we're not giving them what they need in the place um, that we are. So that is uh, a huge part of what my last chapter of my career is going to be about. And let me bring it back to the book, selfishly, by saying that (laughs) 
I do believe that brave spaces and synagogues having conversations about the most incendiary issues in society, that we may be the last places that can provide those brave spaces. Because next week, you and I are going to sit down with our families at Thanksgiving dinner, and we're going to pray that we don't have one of those arguments that gets us estranged from yet another member of our family over politics. And I believe that the synagogue, the church, the mosque, you know, the Hindu temple, whatever it is, that we have the opportunity to provide a safe, brave, and honest space to have these conversations where we're actually going to be heard and not fear being um, you know, eradicated from someone else's playbook. I remember when I interviewed for a job a while, long time ago, and they said, oh, you're the marketing rabbi, because I was talking about how we have to reach out. We have to explain what we offer. We have to not only have good offerings, of course, you have to start with that. But we need different messages than we've been using for synagogues, um, which helps explain some of the vitality of non-traditional Jewish religious options actually out there now. Um, but I wonder, in, in reflecting in this book about some of the really powerful experiences you've had, um, you never really know when those are going to come, do you? No, I mean, I think the... I've had 9-11, I've had 2008, I've had the pandemic, I've had the shootout. I, we have had all these things. Yes, I'm afraid we have. Yeah, and then <laughs> even, and even in the synagogue, I write about uh, 2008, all that, you know, I, I serve a Wall Street congregation. Almost everyone in my congregation either works on Wall Street or serves services that serve Wall Street. Sure, right. well. And that was devastating, but in December, right after that, taking my first vacation after a really hard stretch of time. And we're about to have our third child. And the phone rings from my new assistant rabbi and a nursery school teacher drops dead at 68 years old in front of her students oh in, the, in the school. And so I turn right around and my emeritus is on the phone saying, you've got to take care of yourself and your family. And at that point, without saying it, I knew what he meant. I put on 45 pounds in my first 18 months because all I was doing was working and, and by the way, enjoying it, but not taking care of myself. So we had this argument on the way back because he's being so loving to me and I'm saying I have no choice. I get back, I am wake up at six in the morning, four days later to finish or to polish the eulogy for this impossible funeral. Yeah. And I, the phone rings and it's a past president who says, my emeritus, I just told you I was having this loving argument with, dropped dead that morning. <sighs> and I now have to show up at the funeral and cut ribbons, you know, for Kriya yeah. with his family. And I have to tell them that their rabbi of 50 years before me is not going to be there because he died. Because what, what am I supposed to say to them? Oh, you decided not to show up this morning? Yeah. And, um, <laughs> Boy, if ever there's a time you just kind of want to pull the covers over your head, that's it. I'm telling you. And, and, and I honestly thought that the widower he grabbed his chest and I thought he was going to have a heart attack because he was so close to this, his former rabbi. And while I'm officiating at the funeral, you could see people passing the news on amongst the thousand mourners that are there. So they're crying about the woman who died and then compounded about their rabbi who died. So yes, you know, unexpected upon unexpected and yet creates moments for us to uh, be wise and to learn our deepest life lessons and to take care of each other in ways that we never imagined. So yes, I would say that, uh, and you and I could swap stories now about oh, everything yeah. you've been, <laughs> where we think one thing is happening and then another happens. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, we could, and we could go on for a long time. And Matt, it's been a great visit. I, 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 I mean, I, it's so hard to hold myself back from trading stories with you. Um, love to have you on again soon. Um, thanks so much. Tell us where people can find out about the Build a Brave space and where they can get it. So, yeah, thank you so much for having me. And I have to say that you never know how these things go, but I really could sit down with you and, and perhaps over a glass of scotch. And, yes, and just, you know, single malt. For, yeah, single malt for sure for hours. So thank you for having me. A, B is uh, you could get the book on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all those outlets. And uh, I never thought I would do this because I always thought I'm not one of those guys who's going to have a website. But my publisher said, you have to have a website. You have to have a website. So, yeah, so com. you can find me and books and articles and anything else that I'm uh, working and doing. And I just, uh, let me say one last thing that I know this is a tough subject, but it makes me feel hopeful about what's going to happen to us here in Israel. And I know people would think we're crazy, but that's our way is to get up in the morning and believe that each day we have a chance to make it better. And I do believe that. When we come back on to Jewish, we'll hear about next week's guest, get a final musical play out. We are the soul of Tucson. We are your neighbors and friends. Our commitment to provide the very best relies on the finest products and services you, our community, has to offer. Together, we make Tucson thrive. When we win, you win. Casino del Sol, the soul of Tucson. Enterprise of the Pasquayaki Tribe. Thanks for being here with us this morning on Too Jewish with me, Rabbi Sam Kohan. Join us next week. Our guest will be Rita Katz, Executive Director and Founder of the Search for International Terrorist Entities, the Site Intelligence Group, author of the remarkable new book, Saints and Soldiers, Inside Internet Age Terrorism from Syria to the Capital Siege. Don't forget, join us at Congregation Beit Simcha this Friday night and every Friday night for services in Oneg Shabbat at 6.30 p.m. Saturday morning, too, 9 a.m. Torah study, 10 a.m. services, Torah reading in Kiddush, live in person and available on our Facebook page. Our play out this morning comes from Baruch Levine. It's for Thanksgiving weekend, Modim Anach Nulach, the daily prayer of gratitude. My friends, have a Shavua Tov, a good end of Thanksgiving weekend, and a week we pray profoundly of peace. Sponsored by two Jewish radio programs, Tucson, Arizona.